0: Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 12. You know, I was thinking about um, this time of year, that it's a really cool time of year. If if you're on Facebook or Twitter, just to see Instagram. Instagram. The, the different milestones that are happening as people are graduating from high school. This is graduation weekend, really, around here. Lots of people graduating this weekend, next weekend. And so you see those milestones kind of being accomplished. And it's one of those weeks that even if you're not graduating from high school, there's award ceremonies and, and end of the year kind of review things. And it's just a neat time to kind of see what's happening. And our family, we had one of those weeks this week where, you know, Eli was had a, a special thing on Monday, and then also received an award uh, later in the week on Thursday. And on Wednesday night, um, we had our spring graduation and program for our Mother's Day Out program here at First Baptist. And I tell you, Dana Van Beckoven uh, runs that and does a great job with our Mother's Day Out program. And it's always fun to see the kids as they are doing their program, and then those that are graduating, and as seems like every year recently I have one graduating from Mother's Day out going to kindergarten and they put the full cap and gown on. And so here's Maddie as she was getting ready to graduate on uh, Wednesday night for Mother's Day out graduation. And one of my favorite parts of this is they, they line them all up there. They come down to the pomp and circumstance. They line them all up over here and they give them a diploma, a little piece of paper, and they walk across and they announce what they want to be when they grow up. Now, just to be honest, this year was rather tame, all right? I mean, we had doctors, and we had policemen and firemen, and Maddie is going to be, we did have one cowboy, by the way, it's going to be a professional cowboy. Maddie is going to be a teacher, which is absolutely in line with who she is and, and all of that. Um, I was thinking about one of Luke's friends when he graduated, I was talking to his mom this week, he said that when he grew up, he was going to be a professional break dancer, which, you know, its you got to have high hopes, Right? And so if we would have had a Mother's Day out program when I was her age or a little older, and you would have asked me what I was going to be when I grew up, this would have been my answer. Growing up, I was going to be an astronaut and not just any astronaut. I was going to be this dude out in the middle of space, moving around, doing that kind of stuff. Now, you know, God brings opposites together. Susan does not want to be in space ever like she. You know the movie Gravity? You all know that movie? She says she won't watch that because that one of her fears is being trapped in space. So I said, well, I don't really think that's going to happen, but I understand. You know, I mean, they're just different things. I was this guy. I wanted to, like, have the, you know, I was thinking when I was working my Nintendo Entertainment System that I was practicing for maneuvering around in space. And I, I just wanted to do that. I, mo- a lot of kids growing up in my era were doing that. And then in 1986, a movie came out that confirmed this was my destiny. It's a movie called Space Camp. How many of you remember Space Camp? The rest of you are sadly behind the times. It is the greatest movie in the history of the world. No exaggeration. I mean, this is the cast. Look at that cast. Isn't that, That's a great 80s cast. Space Camp is about a group of kids that go to Space Camp in Huntsville, Alabama, but they all really want to be astronauts one day. And the guy down here at the bottom, who is Max, which just for you movie people, that is Joaquin Phoenix, by the way. He was Max. He really wanted to go to space someday. And he was kind of the runt and everybody picked on him. But he had a computer friend named Jinx. And somehow this group got selected to sit on board the space shuttle while they were practicing a launch. And in the midst of it, Max's friend Jinx determines Max, you know, In the 80s, we didn't care if stuff could really happen or not. We just wanted to watch it on the screen. So Jinx makes the whole thing lift off, and this whole group ends up in space. And that was what I told. I tried to tell my mom to go to space camp every summer because I was convinced I was going to be selected to sit on the space shuttle and accidentally get launched into space. I loved it. And so every time they would do a shuttle launch on TV, I would watch. You ever watched a shuttle launch on TV? Some of you may have seen it live. I mean, I've got one film here, it's just remarkable to think about all that's happening in this moment. I, I like to think, what are the astronauts thinking right now? I mean, when you think about it, this is kind of like the ultimate roller coaster, no turning back, right? Once you hit this point, it's done. And as they blast off into space, I could remember sitting when when I was growing up, we didn't have televisions in every classroom. But they would roll one in and use the bunny ears to find a station to watch this. And we would sit there and just be in absolute awe. Now, most of them went well. I do remember where I was in fourth grade when Challenger did not. But what was amazing to me was just to think about the endless possibilities of blasting off into space. One of the things that is, if you watch this all the way to the end, and we probably won't get to watch it all the way to the end, after they separate the boosters, after all that's happened. In fact, on this video, when it starts to go to black, Houston Command Center says two words. And the two words that they say to the astronauts in there are negative return. And the captain of the ship, the pilot, echoes back negative return. And what that means is if something goes wrong now, Earth is no longer an option. You're too far in that you can never go back. Negative return. I have told you about my favorite roller coaster in history is Texas. John, as you get to the top, there's a sign that says, hey, let's reconsider this. Right. I, I imagine there's been some astronaut, you know, in the history of astronauts, there's been some that when that thing starts to rumble and starts to get off, they're like, hey, uh, let's, let's uh, rethink this whole thing what we're doing right now. Right. Negative return. Here's what I want to tell you. Negative return means that point you can't come back, that you are officially going into orbit, and if something goes wrong, Earth is not an option. Here's what I want to tell you. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, there must come a moment in your life when you get to the point of negative return. Where it is fully all going in. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about this concept of grace, the reality that God loves you no matter who you are, what you've done, where you've come from, the negative things in your life that you hate. God still loves you. And there is nothing you can do to earn his trust or his love more than what you are in the fact that he just loves you, not because you deserve it, but because of his love. There's nothing you can do to earn his love, to learn his liking, to to earn points with God. There is absolutely nothing you can do to earn your own salvation that God has radically transformed us through grace and love that only comes from him. And the question then becomes, so what's next? What, What do we do with that? In Paul's day, there was a group of people that said, well, if we can't do anything to make God like us more, if we can't do anything to make God more proud of us, if we can't do anything to earn anything with God, then you know what? I'm I'm just going to live however I want to live and do whatever I want to do all the time. And Paul says, should we continue sinning so that grace increases? And he says, absolutely not. So what do we do? Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1, gives us a brief thing. We're going to look at this for the next couple of weeks. Just to let you know, there are pastors that have spent literally a year on this one chapter of scripture, we're not going to do that. I'm just going to do two, four hour sessions over the next two weeks. All right. Just checking if you're there. All right. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse one, I appeal to you. Therefore, now, real quickly, I've been taught as Bible studies from the time that I was little until every time I read a commentary on this, whenever the word therefore is in the Bible, you need to ask the question, what is it? Therefore, all right. Why is it there? What's it talking about? Well, here's what I think. Romans 12, verse 1, when it says, I appeal. By the way, that's Paul saying, I'm urging you. This isn't a command, but it would be in your best interest. This is really good advice. I urge you. I appeal to you. Therefore. And I believe, most scholars believe, that what he says in therefore is referring not to just the last few verses or the last few things he said, but everything that came in Romans chapter 1 through 11. Therefore, based on what I've said. Does anybody have a clue what the theme of Romans 1 through 11 is? Maybe won't take a guess as what the theme of Romans 1 through 11 is. Apparently not. Grace. Salvation. When you were growing up, if, if you grew up in a, a Southern Baptist church, especially, we used to talk about a way to share our faith with people, that you would tell people about Jesus and ask them to come and, and accept Jesus and his forgiveness in their life. And we called it a certain kind of road. What kind of road was it? The Roman road, right? Why was it called the Roman road? Because every verse you used came from the book of Romans because the book of Romans in the first 11 chapters gives as clear of an outline of what salvation is like in grace and the gospel is. In fact, just for you, I kind of put together, this is an outline here and it is the, the gospel. It's that man has a problem in chapters 1 through 3. Chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have. We talked about that for the last few weeks. We are all in the same boat. Four and five is God's solution that he sent the new Adam, Jesus Christ, who was perfect and lived a perfect life and gave a sacrifice for our sins. Six through eight is God's provision for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then verses our chapters nine through eleven tells about his faithfulness. In fact, chapter 10 is if you believe in your heart, and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you shall be saved. And so all of Romans one through eleven is A description of the grace and the mercy and the salvation of God. And so in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when it says, I urge you, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, everything we've talked about. For the purposes of this sermon, you could say, for everything we've discussed in the last few weeks about grace and God's love of us. Because of that, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, the language there cannot be more specific about what's being asked. The word present is the technical word for offering a sacrifice as worship in the old Jewish system. It's the act of literally laying something that is valuable to you on the altar, killing it, and then beginning to sacrifice it to the Lord. It is the very word that is used for the way that they used to attempt to pay for their own sins in the way God set up to show them the severity of it. And in case we missed that, the word sacrifice there means something that is completely consumed. Absolutely, completely consumed. What he says is, in view of all that has happened, this is what I urge you. I'm not commanding you. I'm urging you. This is not to gain favor with God, but just as a result of what he's done. Present yourself, your bodies, your whole being as a living sacrifice. And then it gives three words. Actually, living is over here with holy and acceptable. It says sacrifice. Then it gives three words. Living, holy, and Acceptable. And the idea behind that, first of all, it can be living because the death has already been paid in Jesus Christ. We have already had the penalty paid, so you don't have to die in the midst of this sacrifice. It is an ongoing living thing based on the death that Jesus has already done. Holy because it is Christ that has named us holy, set us apart as he has chosen us and has saved us and has redeemed us. And acceptable because Christ's sacrifice was acceptable. Here's what it's saying. Present yourself to God as a sacrifice because Jesus has already done everything you need to do. I was uh, yesterday. We got a call from um, Susan's nephew and uh, they were coming to town and they've got a, a baby that was born in August of last year. And so we were going to go have lunch. We went to chef's market to eat lunch and we ordered everybody and almost everybody there instead of getting the um, the meat and three ordered something off the menu. So we were all kind of waiting, and the first people to get their food were Maddie and Ava, which is fine, that's good. They get their food first and split their food up. And Ava had a plate of chicken and french fries. And Ava um, was just eating away. None of us had our food yet. And I was hungry. And so I looked at Ava's plate, and Ava's got french fries, and she's got chicken. And what did I do as a dad? I ate some french fry, right? I picked a french fry off her plate and put it in my mouth. And as soon as I did, she said, no, daddy. And she took her plate and almost knocked it off the table, scooting it away from me. In my mind, I thought this. And then I said this to my two-year-old, trying to reason with her. You ever tried to reason with a two-year-old? It's like reasoning with a teenager. It doesn't happen, all right? And I said to her, do you know who paid for your meal? No. She didn't know. But here's what I thought. I bought the food for her. I told them what to get. I paid for the food. When they called our name, I went and picked it up, brought it to her, set it in front of her so she could enjoy it. And I tried to take one french fry and she says, no. In fact, when my plate came, you know what she did? She took one french fry. She said, Daddy, that's for the other one. (laughs) What in the world? She's keeping track. Aren't you glad we don't do that with the Lord? You paid for it, you bought it, you spent your time on the cross, you came back from the dead, you bought my salvation, you paid for it, you granted it to me, you handed it to me and said, here, enjoy. And we go, (laughs) Woo I like that part, but the whole giving back, I don't know. Paul says, this is your spiritual. Now, I don't like that translation, and there are lots of commentators that don't. I actually like, this is one of the rare occasions, what the King James Version did years ago. King James Version says, Offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy, and acceptable, which is your reasonable act of worship. Here's what he says. It's the only thing that makes sense. When you come to realize the price that God paid in sending Jesus to die for our sins and that he gave us salvation as a free gift, nothing of ourselves, the only reasonable response to that is eternal gratitude and service the way we can say it here is that the only response to the grace of God is total commitment, complete surrender. That's what Romans 12, 1 says. Because of everything in Romans 11, 1 through 11, because of everything that is there, the only reasonable thing to do is to give everything you've got and offer it to the Lord. Not a part, not a little, not a portion, not some, all. And So the question comes to mind as I think about what we've talked about over the last few weeks and the grace that God has given us. Why is it so hard for us to do that? Why is it so hard to totally commit to the Lord? Why is that so difficult? And the first reason, I think there are two reasons primarily. But the first reason is this, because we are down deep where we are. We don't trust God has our best interest in mind. We think God somehow is out to get us or to punish us or to not let us be happy or fulfilled. And so we somehow think it's better if I go it on my own and don't give myself to God because I don't know what God's going to do with me. You hear people sometimes say, well, I'm afraid what he would ask me to do. Can I tell you something? Whatever it is he asks you to do is better than whatever you've got planned. But somehow we forget that and we think, no, 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 no. <laughs> I know God's got lots going on. I, I, I know what's best for me. Years and years ago, there was a TV show. This was before my time. Um, I want to ask you if it was before yours. But there was a show on TV called Father Knows Best. Y'all have heard of the show, right? First of all, can you imagine them putting that on TV today? Father Knows Best because everybody knows better than Dad today on TV. But we live our life as if we don't believe that our Father knows best. Somebody's out to get us. He doesn't want us to have fun. He wants to get married and have a family and enjoy life. He wants to send us to the remotest part of Africa where we'll never have fun anywhere. Can I tell you something? If that's what he wants to do, it's better than what you got planned. There's a quote that I saw this week from A.W. Toza that I love. He says, The whole outlook of mankind might be changed. If we could all believe that we dwell under a friendly sky and that the God of heaven, though exalted in power and majesty, is eager to be friends with us God's not out to get you he wants to he wants to let you be freed up to do what you were created to do and the second thing that we may never say out loud but we kind of believe why commitment is so hard is because we don't think God can handle our lives I mean, we actually I'm just I'm, I'm too busy to totally commit myself to the Lord. I, I got too much going on. I can't I can't hate my bank statement is not going to let me commit everything I've got to the Lord. I just if you, if you saw my banks, if you saw my schedule, if you knew what was happening at work, you would understand why well, I can't commit to the Lord. These can't it's too much going on. I, I, there's too much in my life right now. I can't get it all square. I, I can't add committing to the Lord to everything else I got. Tim Keller tells a story of being when he was a young man. He was in a he was listening to a lecturer talk and she was talking about um, just comparing the size of the galaxy or the universe. Uh, And she said, if you could imagine that the distance between. The earth and the sun is this sheet of paper, the width of it, not like this, like this, she said, in order to get from earth to the next star closest to us, you would have to have a. Stack of papers, 70 feet high. And just to span our galaxy, which our galaxy is one of millions, you would have to have a stack of paper, 310 miles high. And then she said, are you telling me that you're asking the one that created and keeps all this together, you're asking to come into your life and be your assistant and just help you out a little bit? We somehow think that God can't control. I'll give you another picture. This is a famous picture. Voyager in 1990, 25 years ago right now, was flying out of our solar system. And they, NASA gave it one final mission, was to look back and to take a picture of all the solar system. And what has been called a fortuitous moment, what others call the providence of God, there was something that showed up that surprised astronomers when they got the picture. And it's right here. Do y'all see that little dot? That's us. That's the Earth in a beam of sunlight from the edge of our solar system, which is a part of a huge galaxy, which is a part of a huge universe. And think how ridiculous it is that we say that the God that keeps all this moving together somehow can't take care of your checkbook or your schedule. Or what that means. If I truly follow the Lord. That might mean us doing. And I don't know how that would work out. You got to ask the question. Is it worth the risk? At Harvard and MIT. They use this. They use this way to have case studies. In order to help people learn how to make good decisions. And the whole thing is about weighing the risk. And I love these. I read a couple of them this week. They were just great case studies. One's about a, a 32 year old guy. That's really into estate sales. And. It's a case study. It's not real life. All right. So 32, old got really into case studies and he finds himself in the south at a an estate sale where they're going to sell the whole house and everything in it in one lump sum. So it's not like they're going to auction off every bit. They're just auctioning off all of it. He's walking around and he starts to notice some things. He's a Civil War kind of buff. And he notices these swords over in the corner. And he thinks, I think those are Civil War air. Maybe they are Civil War swords. It starts to intrigue him, and so he finds this kind of hidden door, and, you know, it's the, the case, you can walk anywhere you can go, and he walks down into this unfinished basement. Now, at the bottom of the unfinished basement, he sees a roll-top desk. You know what I'm talking about? One of those, an old, antique roll-top desk. And as he's playing around with it, he notices there's a notch that as he pushes it, the drawer comes open. And inside the drawer are 15 gold-minted Confederate coins. Immediately looking at this, he knows that they're probably worth millions. He cautiously shuts the door, walks back upstairs, goes outside, tries to figure out that what it's going to sell for. And he hears about 95000 And as he talks to his financial guys, he realizes he could scrape together 95000 if he sold everything he had. And then the Harvard and MIT students are asked, what do you think he should do? Second case study they study is an art historian that's going and she's looking at a painting at a sale and she looks at this painting and she says, wow, that looks almost like a Pablo Picasso. And so she asks the lady and the lady says, oh, no, 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 that's somebody that's very good at mimicking Pablo Picasso, but that's not an original Picasso. And so she takes her magnifying glass and as art historians and dealers will do, she's looking all around it. She gets to the corner of it and she notices that there are initials there. And from her art history studies, she knows that Pablo Picasso, before he became famous, would sign his drawings, not with his full name, but just with his initials. And as she looks at it as an expert in these things, she realizes she thinks that that is his handwriting with his initials. She steps back and realizes and looks at the price on the piece of art. It's twenty five thousand dollars and that's all the money she could ever scrape together If she liquidated everything. And the students are asked. Is it worth the risk? You know what I loved about those stories? Is it sounded a whole lot like a story that Jesus told. Right here. The kingdom of heaven. Is like a treasure hidden in a field. Which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells. All that he has to buy that field. So he's looking around the field. He finds a treasure, and when he covers it up and goes and sells all he has to buy the entire field. Or he tells of the second example in the next verse. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Here's the point of Romans twelve one, and the point for you and me today. The point is the most reasonable thing you can do when you have discovered the pearl of great price, the treasure buried in a field, a relationship with Jesus Christ that promises unbelievable rewards in heaven and in the future and a life that is fulfilling here and now. When he says, what do you want to do with it? The risk is absolutely worth it. You give everything you have to him. And so this is the question that we're going to end on today. I'm going to ask you. Are you? Totally. Totally committed? Have you come to that point where you have gone all in on your commitment and your love and your devotion and your life and your finances and your family and your housing situation in who you are and following Jesus? Have you reached the point of negative return where there's no falling back, no going back to a previous thing? You are completely engulfed in him. Are you still trying to keep some stuff under your own control? I appeal to you, therefore, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. For this is the only reasonable thing to do with your life. Everything else is vanity. Let's pray.